All right, you ready for this? Ready. to the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. This is Tom Salemi. Thank you for joining us. We've got sort of a, uh, a stripped-down version of the podcast this week. Unfortunately, Chris Newmarker has caught a cold, which I didn't think we could do that anymore. But uh, it's a nasty one, and we tried to record our Newmarker's Newsmakers and decided, you know what, this just is not going to work. So we're going to go straight into our interview this week with Nicole J. Walker. She is a managing partner at Arboretum Ventures. She has a great medtech story. It spans investing and operations. And uh, she uh, she got a unique start, or she she found a way to force her way into the medtech industry. It's a great story involving a, uh, a, a, a luminary in medtech. I'll leave it at that. I don't want to ruin the story. But uh, really enjoyed talking with Nicole Walker. We uh, talked about her past and what she'll be doing at Arboretum Ventures. So without any new markers, newsmakers, we're going to go right into our interview. Here's our talk with Nicole J. Walker, Managing Partner at Arboretum Ventures. But before we get into this interview with Nicole Walker, I'd like to bring in Jonathan Wax. Jonathan is the Vice President of Quality at Flexan. Flexan is a metal device custom manufacturer, and they've been kind enough to sponsor the four previous episodes of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. I'm bringing Jonathan in to ask him the big question. Where is this industry headed? The cost of developing the next generation of medical devices in a increasingly stringent uh, regulatory environment, uh, it, it's a challenge for the industry. And our customers are really looking to us to provide a solution in which they really want us to provide an end-to-end solution for medical device manufacturing, including sourcing components, manufacturing or assembling, packaging it, providing a sterilization solution and support, and even potentially distribution. And uh, they're also looking for us to provide services that uh, we would not, uh, we, we previously did not provide, such as material selection, biocompatibility studies, and a variety of R&D activities, given the expertise we have uh, in the contract manufacturing space. We're also being asked to provide rapid prototyping for either product development or for tooling. And uh, we're actually being looked at right now to say, what can you provide me that I don't have to do as a medical device manufacturer, and what can you do to support my efforts given the complexity of the next generation devices, as well as complying with a complex regulatory environment in the United States, in, in Europe, and in Asia. Thanks, Jonathan, and thanks, Flexant, for sponsoring the Device Talks weekly podcast. For more information, you can go to flexan.com. That's F L E X A N.com. Well, Nicole Walker, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's it's a great pleasure. And uh, as I start, I like to start all these interviews off the same, which is to find a bit about your your path in into medtech. Mm-hmm. And, and in that, I'm I'm hoping to find the first person ever who can tell me that they had a horrible experience at Guidant because uh, it seems like everyone who <laughs> everyone who worked there just absolutely loved it, and no one says a bad word about it. So I'm hoping you'll break the streak. But. Uh, uh- how did you I find your way into, into medtech? I'm, I'm, I'm getting the sense that you're not going, you're going to disappoint me right off I the bat. I think that I'm going to disappoint you. Um, <laughs> you know, my story into medtech originated as wanting to be a doctor, right? So I grew up and um, the story I tell people is that my great-grandfather was sick with what I was told as being sugar, <laughs> And at four or five, you don't know that sugar is really diabetes, Mm -hmm. but, you know, one week he came over to the house and he had his toe amputated and, you know, that progressed where he lost his foot and lost a part of his leg. And so at a very early age, I got this crazy thought in my mind that, you know, this cannot be the way that you end up from eating too many sweets. Mm -hmm. So 
I'm never going to eat sweets again. And I'm going to be a doctor so that, you know, people don't have to go through this. So that's how it started. Wow. I've, I've never heard <laughs> an ex- interact or an experience with diabetes from the perspective of a young person, of a child, but I can't, I can't imagine how jarring that must be to. Right. Because to, you don't quite understand it. And everyone's using these different terms that right. as a kid, you just interpret as <laughs> what you interpret. Yeah. And it's <laughs> and, a, and to this day, I'm not big on sweets. I, I love savories, but mm, I still shy away from many sweets. Understandable. <laughs> so, <laughs> so when I went off to college, my initial focus was to try and, and combine engineering because I love to use my hands and my dad was an engineering tech and uh, I wanted to be able to tinker around with things, but still be a doctor. And it wasn't until I was in undergrad probably about my sophomore year that I realized that you, you could not really focus. I could not focus on both of those things mm-hmm. equally well. And so while at Stanford, I made the, the decision to focus on engineering, trained as a mechanical engineer, but still wanted to focus on exclusively working in healthcare. So every opportunity I had, I sought out programs or projects or co-op opportunities where I could work with healthcare, whether it was at the Stanford Stanford Rehabilitation Center Mm -hmm. and uh, designing uh, amputee prosthetic devices for children or just working with my professors in any creative way I could. But one day I was driving down the 101 and I saw a sign for something called Advanced Cardiovascular Systems and said, huh, I don't know what that is, but I bet it has something to do with healthcare. (laughs) (laughs) And I showed up at their front door on a Monday and asked to speak to someone in HR because I was a Stanford student and loved all things mechanical. And so surely they would want to hire me as a co-op student. And they quickly told me that they did not hire undergrads (laughs) in that way (laughs) and that I should come back after I had my master's. Uh, So I kept showing up. I showed up Tuesday. I showed up Wednesday. And by Thursday, one of the HR representatives came out and said, you cannot keep showing up like this. That's not how this is. What possessed you to to keep (laughs) showing up? I mean, that's awesome. That's great. And I can't wait to hear how the story ends. But what was was your thought process? Because in this process of trying to always convince, you know, my professors to let me not work on some thermal design project that was related to aerospace, but let me find a way to do it in healthcare. I just became more and more convinced that I had to figure out a way Uh (laughs) to get a real experience in healthcare. And so when I saw advanced cardiovascular systems, I just locked on the idea that this has to be the place where I could have exposure to healthcare using my engineering degree. And so they just needed to listen to my pitch. <laughs> so what happens on Thursday? <laughs> so, so Thursday, <laughs> the HR representative finally comes out and you can't keep coming, showing up like this. You know, here's the deal. I spoke to one of our, our engineering managers. He may have a project for you to work on. He's going to come down and speak to you. If you convince him, then okay, fine. So... The engineering manager comes down and it's Fred Koshrabi. Oh my gosh. And I pitch. <laughs> I'm a really talented Stanford engineer. I love engineering, but I want to use it in healthcare. And he's like, okay, okay, okay. They keep telling me that you keep showing up every day. Um, you can't keep doing that. <laughs> <laughs> so here's what we can do because it was almost summer. So we, we could maybe come up with an internship for you, but we need someone to work on process engineering. Do you know how to run process experiments? Blah, blah. Of course I do. Absolutely. I do. Did not. Did not at all. <laughs> I was waiting for that. <laughs> did not. The first, the first experiment, I think day two, I couldn't remember whether you were supposed to pour acid into water or water into acid. It, yeah, I blew it up in the hood. So clearly, <laughs> I just I just wanted to get into the door and learn as much as I could. And that was my first day at Advanced Cardiovascular Systems. I did that my sophomore s- summer, my junior summer, and then uh, 
graduated and literally walked into the building as a full-time employee after graduating on a Monday. And by that time, they had hired me to be a full-time reliability engineer for the original multi-link stent team. That was my how my career in medtech started. And that's how I ended up being a part of the Guidant family. But yes, if it were not for Fred Koshavi taking a bet on this crazy person sitting in their lobby, um, it could have been very different. That's amazing. I mean, two things. Just the fact that you're... If you're about to have a, an interview with Fred Kosravi, you know you think it would be something you'd prepare a week I didn't for. Know who he was. <laughs> and and you would have like, this is my big shot. This is my chance. I've got to I've got to impress and and basically to just walk in from checking in the front desk to suddenly meeting him and and apparently nailing it. That's a, that's amazing. How did you how did you keep the the job after blowing something up. <laughs> how? how, how? <laughs> uh, you know, so here's the, here's why I believe all of the parts that eventually became Guyton were such great places to work and grow up, especially as a, a, a very green engineer. It is because if you were hungry enough to keep learning and take on any responsibility that they were willing to give you, you just learned a ton. And it was all about how do we deliver better healthcare to patients and what we were doing. I was literally um, as part of the original multi-link team coming up, not only with how we should test the stents to determine if they should be used in humans, but designing the test because all of this was new to the marketplace <laughs> and there was no one to tell you that that was the wrong way because no one really knew how to do it. And so how I stayed or how I kept the job, I think is that I was always part of this broader team that was trying to push the boundaries of what we could do, but at its core, you know, deliver really transformational technology and not be afraid to do it. So I learned, I got comfortable very early in my career that you will never have all of the answers and not all the answers you have will be right answers mm -hmm. or correct answers, but you have to always have enough metal and, and uh, sensitivity about what you are trying to do to, to paint that picture, right? For not only your team, but for management, because they were asking us to make decisions about when to go into human clinicals or not. So I actually uh, did the testing for the first lot of stents that we used internationally for uh, the ACS metal stent program and flew over and did all the lot testing on site in the UK. That was my first international trip. That's amazing. So what was the, the, the time it got it like? I mean, it, it, when it wrapped up, you were head of marketing and you were in, in Hong Kong, right? I mean, you, yeah. <laughs> you rose pretty quickly through the, through the ranks. Yeah. Um, what was, uh, talk a bit about how you did that and, and how did you mm -hmm. move from engineering to your, your head of marketing in Asia Pack? Is that right? That is correct. Yeah. That is correct. Uh, also, uh, I will say the theme in my career <laughs> is that again, I, I really like building organizations and, if I think it's a really interesting problem to solve, I will go for it. So I had been uh, ultimately managing part of the engineering team and we had launched, I think two products internationally at that point in six years, uh, which, or maybe even three. So it was just a really fast clip that we were moving at and I was almost burned out. Mm -hmm. And I had taken on a lot of responsibility without a lot of, formal training of how to look at P&Ls and how to think about strategy. We were just doing it on the fly. So I really wanted to take some time and, and um, come back to Chicago and get my MBA. And Guyton was, was nice enough to, to help me do that. And when it was time to make a decision about what to do, you know, I had done a summer on Wall Street and equity research. Hmm. And yeah, so because I was still technically a guide and employee, I ended up covering internet radio. <laughs> but yes, yes, internet radio <laughs> and PC hardware because I couldn't touch anything related to healthcare. Wow. Yeah, which I missed the whole 
internet radio was going to become iTunes, but that's another story. <laughs> um, and out of that, you know, had interviewed investment banking, had interviewed managed consulting and really knew that I wanted to go back into industry. And so uh, the senior management at Guyton came back to me and said, we really want you to take on this assignment in Hong Kong and help uh, be a part of that senior team and, and head up the marketing and uh, focus on moving our interventional uh, cardiac surgery and peripheral products back into the Asian markets. And I turned it down twice Wow! <laughs> because up to that point, I had never seen a great example of an expat transition mm-hmm. within a larger company. Uh, but at, when, when I was considering it, Dana Mead was the president mm-hmm. <laughs> of Asia PAC and uh, a gentleman by the name of Ron Latanzi was the, the general manager for, for Asia PAC. And essentially his advice to me was you cannot turn down an offer sight unseen. Nobody does that again <laughs> with the Fred Koshavri reminder, nobody does that. <laughs> so, so at least fly to Hong Kong, let us, introduce you to the team, some of our KOLs that you would be responsible for and, and see if it makes sense. And on that trip or yeah, on that trip to Hong Kong, I decided this was the area where I could really stretch myself mm-hmm. and learn in a way that I wouldn't be able to, if you had sent me to Europe to do the same thing, because they would have never made me <laughs> out of marketing of Europe at that point. Mm-hmm. It was just too much. It, it was too large of a market and, and, um, to give someone who was just moving into a marketing role wouldn't have made sense. But the, the pitch to me was who better to stand in front of the customer and really talk about the product and talk about why they should be using our product and even negotiating with health systems and distributors about the same than someone who helped design the product Mm -hmm. (laughs) and understood, you know, the, the limits and the potential for it clinically. And that's a lot of what I did. I just had lots of talks and conversations and negotiations with clinicians, as well as I learned a ton about uh, how to build pricing models, how to build inventory models, how to work across borders to move products and you know, influence your way back at the home office to get to the front of the line, even though you're the smallest market. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I probably learned 10 years worth of managing a business internationally in, in three years. That's great. Two, two questions Go, going way back to early on before mm-hmm. even ACS, you mentioned that you're working on, a, a, on prosthetics for, for kids. Mm-hmm. Was there anything connected with your grandfather with that? Or was it just a coincidence that that was. It was a coincidence. Yeah. Again, I, I had no idea that Stanford had a specific uh, re- rehabilitation center for children mm-hmm. right? and, and found out through some investigation that uh, some of the projects or external projects that they worked with the school of engineering on were, could they find some creative ways to optimize prosthetics and, and just turned it into a a co-op opportunity or project project for one of my classes. Gotcha. And second question, if someone were doing what you did today, if someone Mm -hmm. were doing today, what you did then (laughs) coming in day after day after day, and you were the decision maker. Would that would, would that work today? That's still the that same sort of uh, 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 attempt to sort of bend reality to your will. Uh, it depends on uh, some people call it tenacity. Okay. Other people call it wow, that person's hard headed. Um, uh, how would you respond? Or, or are things different now? Is it less kind of wild west now? And there's more procedures and med tech and there's biomed programs and sort of things routes you have to take. No, I I think. I think that there's still an opportunity for that. It's hard to do that with a, to walk into the lobby of an Abbott and do that. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> but ACS at that point, we were talking 1990, ACS at that point was still a fairly young entity. Yep. I mean, they were still scrappy. ACS, DVI, they were still very scrappy. <laughs> so, and they still in, in, in a number of the minds of the senior management team, which they then pushed into the organization, they still had more of a venture back um, mentality, even though they were a part of, of Lily still at that point. So I think there's opportunities to do that. And I see that all the time in venture mm-hmm. of these entrepreneurs have to be aggressive and creative 
and scrappy and not shy about why they're passionate about things. Mm -hmm. And there are multiple times that I take a second look or I pause when I am that impressed by the level of passion and tenacity that they have around the business and that they've thought through a number of the problems um, in a way that shows that they're thinking about it. Uh, even if I may disagree with <laughs> the answers that they're coming up mm -hmm. with or the pathway that they're on right now. But that, that still does impress me because I know how hard it is. <laughs> oh, that's great. Great answer. So let's talk then about the transition uh, from corporates to venture. You joined Onset Venture in Ju June 2003, and I'm obviously looking at your LinkedIn profile. What, what precipitated that? What, what, what led you to say, I want to be a venture capitalist next, or at least try it out? Sure. So for me, uh, you know, September 11 happened and we, we had all flown to the States and uh, to go to the, the TCT conference in Washington, DC. Mm -hmm. And so myself, a number of our sales team and 180 of our clinical customers, our clinicians had flown over. And that was probably the turning point for me in knowing that I was going to have to start making some decisions about how long I wanted to work inter internationally, because after that point, it became harder. It became more difficult for my team to travel with me. And prior to that, I had responsibility for 14 countries in Asia, you know, Pakistan and Malaysia and Sri Lanka and uh, Indonesia. I can't even name all 14 anymore, but, but that, that number started to come down as we started to look at well, what makes the most sense in terms of, of travel. And so the thought process started then. Uh, and by the time I made the decision that it was time to come back home, I had decided that I wanted to start my own company hmm. because uh, at, by that time, you know, Fred had left Guide and started a couple of companies. Uh, Amr Salahie had left and started a company. <laughs> so uh, many of the people who I used to be on, on the team with mm -hmm. had left and were CEOs of their own companies. And so I thought, well, maybe I can do that too. And uh, a, a very strong piece of advice that Fred gave me was, that's great, but maybe you should take a moment and really understand how, how a venture capitalist works and uh, how to best negotiate with them and against them mm -hmm. <laughs> to put your best, yourself in the best position. And so I work with this firm called Onset Ventures and they're actually looking for an associate. I think you should talk to them about that position. And that's how that, that discussion started. Although I was not originally excited about moving back into what I felt like was a junior role, sure. <laughs> even in a, a new industry. But uh, the, the, the advice I was given by a number of people, and it's the advice that I give many people now, is that sometimes you have to move laterally mm -hmm. or you have to take a step back to really give yourself a unique opportunity. And that's what Onset ended up being for me because it was a great way to step into a brand new world, right? <laughs> I knew how to manage projects and programs and people, um, but I'd never built my own business. Mm -hmm. And so I got to see that through the eyes of a number of, of entrepreneurs. I also had a, an opportunity to learn entire new sectors. I had been cardiovascular up to this point and we looked at ophthalmology, we looked at uh, diagnostics, we looked at some software opportunities. So it was just a fantastic way to open up my lens and at the same time learn what venture really looked like and what venture deals uh, took to, to come together and how you structured them or all the different ways they could be structured and how companies fail, <laughs> how syndicates fail, mm -hmm. how, how boards operate. And, and, the team at, at Onset was very open. They gave me responsibility because of my operating background from the very beginning. So they had me run um, full diligence on new investments and they had me sit on boards on my own. And so that was just uh, a fantastic opportunity or a way to come into venture. 
that's so you so you make the transition of venture and what i find interesting is that you actually found your way back to to abbott to corporation um yes. what uh, i mean did you not like being a vc or what what no, what became available to you no the the beauty of the the onset program and this is what uh leslie batoff and rob cooling mm-hmm had designed was that they wanted it to be an in and out program. They wanted to expose people to venture. They wanted someone who had uh, a certain amount of operating experience. So their preference was for someone who had been in an operating role for at least eight years at the time and that they could drop them into portfolio companies and it would give them an opportunity to, it would give the associate an opportunity to, either decide that they wanted to go into an operating role mm-hmm. into one of the por- portfolio companies, or maybe even start their own company that oh, it's maybe perfect. onset could be yeah. a, yeah, an investor in. Yep. So for me, it was perfect. Yeah. I was like, okay, yes, I'm going in as an associate, but it actually gives me a pathway <laughs> to what I think my end goal is of starting my own company. And once I started working in venture, I just realized that I, I liked it, but I, I felt like I still had a desire to do one more operating role or a little bit more of an operating role. Um, I thought I would be one of the people who would move into an operating role in one of the portfolio companies, started, you know, having discussions. And we were taking a look at that point at Theracense. Yes. Theracense. And, And it was right before right at their IPO round or right before their, their IPO rounds. And we ended up not doing it, but I reached out to them and started having a discussion of, you know, the strategic marketing that you're doing. That sounds really interesting. I think there could be a fit. I'm ready to make my next move. Let's, let's talk. And they were kind of slow rolling me mm-hmm. and Abbott bought them. <laughs> I'm like, oh, <laughs> that's why we couldn't speed up this process. <laughs> so Abbott bought them and I ended up joining, you know, uh, their diabetes division because of that connection with, uh, Theracense and had gotten a, this time I, I learned enough by this point to know it would also help you if you could have someone make an introduction mm-hmm. on your behalf that they should hire you. So, uh, I had a friend, Sarah Toyloy, who facilitated that introduction and, um, they gave me the interview and, and, that's how I ended up in strategic marketing and, and business development for them. I obviously have to ask, uh, diabetes care, we started this conversation talking about your grandfather. Was there mm-hmm. any co- connection there? It was. And that was one of the reasons that I had started taking a really hard look at how I could work with Theracense because twofold, I, I really started to understand internationally um, the deep connection between cardiovascular disease and, and diabetes, right? And especially in uh, people of color around the globe, the higher incidence of diabetes, higher incidence of, uh, of complications in, in many of these populations associated with having both diabetes and cardiovascular disease. And so I felt strongly that, that a lot that they were doing around continuous glucose management and understanding how your glucose affected uh, the way that you could get ahead of a lot of these chronic conditions in addition to diabetes was really, really important. So I believed in their mission. And again, it went back to someone's grandfather, Mm -hmm. someone's grandmother, someone's mom or dad could really benefit from this and they shouldn't have to be caught up in, in a situation where they, they lose their sight or their limbs because they didn't have the right level of care or the right technology that could have improved their care. And it also gave me an opportunity to move into more of a consumer facing healthcare delivery, as opposed Mm -hmm. to up to this point in an operating role, I had more of a clinician facing healthcare delivery. And I learned a ton about how you really design products for consumers, how you market to consumers where you still have to rely on the clinician. It's a clinician mediated medical device, but you always have to put the patient forward in a really different way because they have to be able to use whatever you are putting in their hands in a seamless fashion and to feel confident in doing that. So it was a great learning ground again. Yeah, there's no more consumer-oriented med tech sector than, than diabetes, I would say. I mean, that 
we've had that we've had that topic on the podcast the last couple of months and and there's just no i think population that's as plugged into innovation and new tech yeah. as, as the diabetes industry uh, the diabetes patient well, population and as part of that role you know i spent i spent many an hour behind the one-way mirror of focus groups mm-hmm. uh it's part of the product development and market access work that we did. And the the stories of why people wouldn't engage, couldn't engage. It was some, some were just funny and others were heartbreaking. And so I think if, when you go into a consumer environment and you're required to be in front of the consumer in that way of really understanding the DNA of how they're interacting with the product, you start to internalize that. And it's, it's one of the things that um, still serves me extremely well in what I do now, right? Because I always have those callbacks of, yes, I listened to 1,200 people talk about why they hate the color orange in their meter. And here's why, <laughs> because it brings up emotions of this, that, and the other. <sighs> Okay. (laughs) Or why they would never, they would never test in public because there's this unwritten um, belief that people will think that you're not testing your diabetes, that you're doing something else. Oh, interesting. Yeah. We heard people say that all the time that they never wanted to test in public because they were afraid that people would think that they were doing drugs or, you know, they might be sick in some way that people wouldn't have an appreciation for it. And so, this idea of it being seamless to your life is is one of the the nice things about a CGM product and why we were so uh, passionate about bringing that to the market in the U.S. in particular. So, and, and I would have at one point said that that's crazy, but given how we've responded to health issues over the past 14, 15 months, I kind of will believe anything or people, yeah. I believe people will believe anything, but, uh, but uh, so... In, in October 2000, at this point, have you given up your hope to create your own company or have you put it aside or are you still nurturing that? Because you you go I'm, into the venture group at Ventures. <laughs> it's still in the back of my mind. Again, I had been on the road now in that position for, I think, almost four years where uh-huh. I spent more time outside of the U.S. than the U.S. And so... I just like I've got I have to find a way <laughs> to spend more than a week a month in my house. So <laughs> um you know, so again, started to have these conversations about what next, what are some of the opportunities that I'm interested in, what what's uh available within the company. And um at the time the CEO of of that division, the president of the diabetes division was a woman by the name of Heather Mason. And Heather had an idea based on some conversations that we had had, that we had in the past that I might be interested in going back into venture, but doing it for Abbott and that Abbott had decided to uh, spin up their um, corporate venture teams finally. And this was after they had acquired Guidance, right? Mm-hmm. Or their half of guidance. And so the Compass unit was in existence anyway. And uh, I think that was the final push point to say, I think it, it was time to, to have corporate venture groups within Abbott. But because Compass was already established, the offer that was made to me was given your operating background and your venture experience, you would be great to move into the corporate venture group, <laughs> except we want you to help us stand up the biotech side of the house. Oh boy. Oh boy. (laughs) (laughs) Internet banking was probably easier. (laughs) Well, and I looked at it. And so she, she introduced me to Jim Tyree, who at the time had been the president of Abbott's biotech division or, or pharmaceutical division. And he was getting ready to, uh, stepped down from that role and, and had agreed to take over as president of, of Abbott or what would become Abbott Biotech Ventures. And I, I had a conversation with Heather. You do know I'm not a chemist by training. <laughs> and I have never evaluated a, a biotech or a pharma deal and had the same conversation with Jim. And, and both of them gave me the piece of advice of, you know, again, don't turn down the opportunity without us having a conversation about what it could look like, but uh, we can pair you with a scientist. What mm-hmm. we need is someone who understands venture. 
and has networks in venture or can get us into networks in venture. And, and that's how that conversation started. And, and once we talked about what, what the company wanted to do with the venture teams and, and what we could do as part of the um, original team to help build that, um, I was like, why not? Why, why wouldn't I do this? And, and have the opportunity to move back to Chicago and be closer to family. It seemed like a, a, it seemed like a great transition at that point. But it was not a, it was not by design. So people always ask me, well, how did you get into corporate venture? What was your strategy? There was no strategy. (laughs) There was, again, this, this pivot point or this inflection in my career where I knew I wanted to do something different, didn't know quite what, had conversations and opportunities presented themselves. But when you take that, that step on that rock going over through the stream, do you know where, do you know what? the next rock is you're going to take? Did, did you at that point say, this is going to be a venture career for me, or let's see what I can learn here and then see where I'm at when this is done? You know, at that point, I would say after the first year of doing the venture, the corporate venture role, I, I knew that venture yeah. was going to be it for me. I kind of knew then you're not going to take another operating role. <laughs> <laughs> And it goes back to just how, how wide you can make that lens that you're looking through. The, the ability that we have as venture investors to work with really talented teams in areas that are just hungry for better solutions, <laughs> even when it was a narrow, a smaller lens, you know, making those decisions on behalf of Abbott because they were strategic investments we were making, right? So I wasn't going to suddenly invest in ortho for Abbott without an ortho mm-hmm. franchise. But being able to, especially doing four years of biotech investing, I learned 14 new therapeutic areas. I, I knew rheumatoid arthritis cold <laughs> at that wow. point. You know, I, I had built up a, a knowledge base around oncology. I had built up a, a knowledge base around inflammation and um, neurology. And so all of that now feeds into the investment lens that I use currently. And it was built on that foundation and looking at it through the strategic viewpoint and having the backup of really talented scientists within the Abbott infrastructure to help navigate you along the way of, okay, this is what good science looks like. And this is what could happen in the clinical trials. And these are the things that you you would need to to look out for if we consider this. And so again, a a great, a really great training ground. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so when you you put all of that together, it was, it, it was an amazing way to learn so much about healthcare in almost a university like environment or masterclass environment every time I moved into one of those roles. And so when, when Abbott made the decision to split into Abbott and AbbV, I honestly made the decision to move back to the med tech side because mm-hmm. I thought that I could have a, a broader and deeper impact of bringing all of that back into the med tech world, especially once, once I was able to see just um, how aggressive and how creative the the marketing and sales side of <laughs> of therapeutics, pharma therapeutics was, um, and how they looked at things in terms of market access strategy and and uh, uh, building companies, even from a venture perspective. Mm-hmm. I thought that a lot of that creativity we could layer into med tech and and help uh, shorten some of our cycles and and think about bringing. Pro- products to market faster. Well, well, now you're, you're fully on, on the VC side. Talk, talk a bit about fully. Uh, how did you, what led to the, 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 the move over to Baird and, and then let's also, you know, move into mm-hmm. what you're, what you'll be doing at, uh, at Arboretum Ventures, which is a, a, another great firm. Sure. You know, the, the move to Baird was an easy one from the perspective of, of they were also looking for someone to help them build their team that had a strong operating background. And I think at that point, after doing corporate venture investing for six years, five years, I was ready to, to essentially broaden my, spread my wings. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, And I think 
the advantage of corporate venture investing is that you you do have all of these resources available to you, but only through the strategic lens, at least for our program. And the opportunity at Baird was a way for me to step into traditional, back into traditional venture investing and to be able to take on looking at all of the breadth of healthcare investing, except for direct drug development. We did not do that at Baird. So it gave me that opportunity and uh, uh, being based in Chicago, it was a great way to, to reduce my commute from an hour and a half one way <laughs> to about 20 minutes as well. And it was a great team. Hey, everyone, this is Tom. Taking a quick break from the conversation with Nicole Walker to tell you about a presentation we have on Device Talks Tuesdays. It's a bit different than our normal Device Talks Tuesdays. It's not a live webinar. It's a recorded message I did with uh, an executive from Alibaba and uh, one of their suppliers. Alibaba.com is now selling medical devices and medical supplies to physicians. And uh, they have a, a virtual meeting going on right now. You can find out more about their effort in medical devices and about the meeting at this Device Talks Tuesday's webinar. It's pre-recorded. It's a short interview, but just go to devicetalks.com. Register as you would any other webinar. You can watch the video live right there on devicetalks.com. We'll pick up this interview when Nicole was at a bit of a crossroads. She enjoyed her time at Baird. As she said, it was a great team, but they were having long-term planning discussions, succession planning discussions. And she still had in her mind uh, the idea of starting her her own business, or in this case, her own venture firm. So uh, she sought out the advice of a mentor of hers, Jan Garfinkel, managing partner and founder of Arboretum Ventures. Let's listen. And I had reached out to Jan and wanted to get her thoughts on it. Had, had, and she's been a mentor of mine and wanted to seek out her opinion of how hard it was to start your own fund. <laughs> what do you wish you knew uh, then that you do know now? And Arboretum was at that point of, of also thinking about succession planning and uh, if they should bring on another partner and, and what that might look like. And we had been co-investors in mm-hmm. uh, a number of deals together. And so she planted that seed and said, well, you can definitely do that. <laughs> but why don't you think about this too? Um, and so that's where I started to really to kind of tease out how do I want to, how do I want to, to, I hate to say, kind of end or think about the ending of my career per se. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when you make these types of moves, I envision it as being a, at least a 20 year commitment, right? You Mm -hmm. have to walk into it that way. And so that for me, I'm I'm hopeful that I'll retire at the end of 20, 25 years or some, something in that nature. So for me, it was, I think I would be the happiest. It would give me the most flexibility and coming out of COVID, quite honestly, it would give me the ability to focus professionally and, and kind of from a, a mental stimulation point on the area of investing that I love the most. And that's all things healthcare, while still allowing me a little bit more flexibility to uh, focus on continuing to be a healthcare advocate for my parents. And so I spent a lot of time with them and uh, helping them navigate their, their care pathway, which I have to say, since I've been so ingrained in healthcare, watching all of these same problems that we talk about, them getting, mm-hmm. falling into, just is maddening. <laughs> but I get another discussion. No, you're, you're absolutely right. I had similar similar relationship with my parents when they were around. I'd go to the doctor's offices with them. and Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I, I'd be asking these questions. And my father would look at me like, why did you go to medical school? <laughs> <laughs> I just stayed at a Holiday Inn Express last night, <laughs> and I write a newsletter. Uh, so, what's the plan then at, that uh, at Arboretum? Uh, what kind of companies do you think? I mean, you've you've bring such a broad range of mm-hmm. of experience and knowledge. Uh, you could invest in any direction, I imagine. But do you do you have a focus? And uh, I'd love to just hear how you're how you look to engage with uh, with startup 
companies and entrepreneurs? Should they should they come by the Arboretum office? And sit in the lobby. Day after day? <laughs> <laughs> sit in the lobby and stake you out? No, no. I'm guessing no. no yeah, I'm no. guessing that's a no. Yeah. <laughs> no, so our, our mission at Arboretum is really to uh, deliver with our entrepreneurs transformational health care, quality care at better cost systems. We're with better cost systems in, in our, our, our healthcare environments. And so our focus is fairly broad. We look at or make investments into devices, life science tools, tech-enabled services for the healthcare vertical. Uh, but where, where we tend to focus are the areas that we consider to be pharma adjacencies. So a a software-based tool, for example, that has some some data play around it or or analytics that drive drug discovery, uh, clinical trial management, uh, opportunities to improve the efficiency of uh, commercialization of therapeutics, so supply chain management or or PBM disruption. So that, that area where clearly everything that I learned about the value chain around pharmaceutical <laughs> development and commercialization. How mm-hmm. can all of the med tech tools that we have help to engage that environment and, and help for better care delivery in that environment? And we do that, you know, across the U.S., but we do have a, a particular focus on opportunities that are in the emerging areas of the country. So um, whether it's in Texas or Colorado or uh, even East Coast, but North Carolina, D.C. versus Boston, we we try to get into those markets that have traditionally been underserved by larger venture funds and, and try to tap into some of those strong entrepreneurial teams as well. Uh, So about 60% of the fund tends to be what we say non-coastal and about 40% of our investments tend to be coastal. And with that, we tend to lead all of our investments or a number Mm -hmm. of them. So our latest fund is a $250 million fund, uh, Arboretum 5. And uh, we will initially come in with a check size of somewhere between six and 10 million and then focus on series A investments predominantly uh, with the opportunity to do seed investments when they're, they're closer to our backyard. And so uh, we, we tend to say that our sweet spot is series A. Excellent. And just final question. I know you've got to go and uh, I've got to go to, this has been a great talk. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm interested in the, the, non-coastal or, or the less of an emphasis on coastal. Mm-hmm. We had Josh Macauer on the podcast last week, obviously mm-hmm. he's centered, centered on the West coast. You kind of found your way in the industry on, on the West coast uh, yes. in that same area. Now you've been in the Midwest for a number of years. How do you view these pockets of, of med tech innovation? Cause we are, we are seeing a lot of ideas, a lot of companies emerge from all over the country, whether they have the infrastructure in place to support them is a different story. Yes. Uh, And that seems to be the the point you're sort of executing on, that you want to be the ones to find those diamonds in the rough that maybe someone else would miss because it's not on the Atlantic or the Pacific Ocean. Correct. Whenever I'm asked that question, I immediately go back to the fact that the Bay Area and the number of the sheer number of firms didn't look that way when I first started at ACS. Mm-hmm. It exploded into that. It did, <laughs> and it, it happened because you had an infrastructure. I believe it happened because you had such a rich infrastructure of universities, small companies, successful entrepreneurs who kept recycling in that community, right? And in essence, when those dollars just kept recycling, it, it kept feeding and making itself stronger and bigger and broader. We haven't seen that in as many non-Bay Area and Boston environments, but we're starting to. And mm-hmm. so you're, you're seeing pockets, and we saw it in Chicago where you had you know, Groupon, and, and, and those winners were able to take their their returns and start their own angel funds and those mm-hmm. angel funds into tech became more successful and then they started looking at at health tech <laughs> and so 
what usually creates or becomes a gap in those markets is that once you have the kind of five to $20 million fund that then grows into the $50 million fund, you have to start bringing in the $100 million fund and the $200 million fund to be able mm-hmm. to grow those assets locally without having them being forced to move to the coast because a coastal investor comes in and they just want them to be clo- closer to home because they're, they're such young investments, right? Mm-hmm. They're, they're series A. And, and we do see that as an opportunity to help not only build multiple healthcare hubs across the country, but also um, to really find new interesting and, and creative answers to, to the problems that we're trying to solve here within healthcare delivery. And so it's been really interesting to see areas like Nashville, areas like Austin <laughs> mm-hmm. come into their own in that way and to see the funds really start to grow in each of those areas and to see a number of um, the coastal funds make a, uh, a focused effort to you know, start an office in some of these uh, other regions as well. I think that speaks well to, to everyone understanding that we, we need to have multiple pockets because there, there are different levels of expertise in each of those areas as well that you can leverage, whether that the company starts in those areas and they expand into the coast or whether you decide that we've started this company on the coast, let's say, <laughs> and our expertise is really sitting in Austin. So let's leverage the talent down there and have a syndicate partner that we know we can, we can build this with because they're of the same metal and size as we are. No, it's exciting. It's exciting to see these areas emerge. We'll, we'll have our device talks uh, meeting in Minneapolis next next year. So I'm uh, next June. So I'm anxious to get back there and uh, nice. see all these great companies there again. And, and, uh, Hopefully we'll get to meet. Get to meet. I, I'm surprised we never have spoken before, uh, but I'm really, I'm really glad we had the chance to. Uh, to, to People catch tell up. me that all the time. I'm surprised we've never met. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Always on a plane. Well, thanks. Thanks for telling your story, and uh, and thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you. Well, that is a wrap. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. I am Tom Salemi, Editorial Director of Device Talks. I'm missing my podcast partner, Chris Newmarker, the Executive Editor of Life Sciences. You can find us both on social media. I am on Twitter at MedTechTom. Chris is on Twitter at Newmarker. That's as in a new marker. We're both on LinkedIn. Please connect with us there. And when you do, Please do share this podcast, this episode of the podcast, and connect us to that post. We'd love to be part of those conversations. Finally, please do subscribe to this podcast. You can find the Device Talks Weekly Podcast and our Medtronic Talks Podcast on all major podcast channels, Apple, Google, Spotify, Amazon, they're they're all there. So just subscribe, make sure you don't miss a future episode, make sure you see or rather hear these episodes first, they'll be sent directly to your listening device. That's a wrap, folks. Thanks again for joining us on the Device Talks weekly podcast. Tune in next week. We'll have another great episode of this podcast waiting for you. 